Thank you, Lord, for the beautiful weather. Thank you. We can have the doors open for a few minutes, and it, it's glorious. We love where we are, and um, we're thankful that you've placed us at this particular geographic location, at this particular time in history, um, and that we have access to your holy scriptures in a, in a printed and closed uh, form, and that we can study this. And we pray that we would uh, know more about your word today, specifically uh, the book of Genesis, and that we would think more rightly about all of history and about what Christ has accomplished because we have gained more uh, information about uh, the, the beginnings, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we're in our study of the themes of the Old Testament in the Hebrew canonical order. And uh, Genesis also begins the Hebrew canonical order, is just like the, the, the kind that you have in your lap right now. So let's take care of a few kind of like housekeeping type things here with Genesis. So uh, Genesis, the word, actually means I face it there, okay. Genesis, the word, actually means beginning. Um, so that makes things nice and clean. Oh, 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 oh. Hold on, hold on. We got to do a review. Almost, I almost cheated you of the opportunity to be quizzed. So, all right, all right. From last week's introductory class, uh, what is the word that is used to describe the Hebrew canon? There we go. The Tanakh. Uh, Wayne, since you were so eager, here we go. This is what you get for doing a good job, right? You get, you get more work. What, what are the, uh, where, what's the division? How, what do those represent? You can, even in English. Okay, okay. Tanakh, what, anyone? Okay, law, prophet, and writing. Now you really get extra credit if you can actually tell me what the words for T, N, and K stand for, where we get Tanakh. T, you probably can get, right? It's the Torah, the first five books, the law. Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketavim. So the, the law, prophet, and writings, I know that's, that's asking a bit much. Now, uh, also, uh, if you can, without looking, if you kept your hand out, if you can off the top of your head, the prophets were divided pretty cleanly into two different categories. No, but I love the confidence, Dennis. Yes, yes, what was it? Former and latter, good, and we'll end up talking about that more when we get down the road. Uh, and then the writings were pretty much divided pretty cleanly, um, it might even be exact, half and half, uh, in two different categories as well. There we go, pre and post exilic. So. Half of them, yeah, yeah. Half of them are written prior to the exile. Half after the exile has taken place. So again, I want to try to remind you those things, so that you're placing um, historical history, biblical history, in your minds. It's getting embedded in there. And then, you know, when PJ preaches out of Daniel, you automatically, oh wait, this is post-exilic and things like that. So okay, now back to Genesis. It uh, the very word itself means beginning, uh, which makes sense. Uh, it's believed. That it is, let's see if this works, um, that it was authored 1446 uh, B.C. to about 1406 B.C. 
Now this is going to give you a little bit of a clue. If we can do some light math, all right, if, if, as far as when do you be, is it believed that this was being authored, one of the ways that you can kind of maybe get a clue here is if you do a little light math, what, how long did it take for, uh, and this, by the way, these dates include the entirety of the Torah, not just Genesis. So uh, how long did it take it to be authored? Hmm. 40 years. What else do we know took 40 years? So it's uh, the, the expectation or that they believe um, that, or that the entirety of the Torah was being authored during the wandering in the wilderness the, during those 40 years. So obviously God was making good use of, uh, you know, talk about turning a, a, a bad thing into a good thing. You know, they're wandering because of their sin. But hey, since you're wandering, how about you go and knock out uh, the first five books of the Bible? And then we get to our author, and I want to take, uh, take a few minutes to, to talk about that just a little bit, only because there's been question, people have called into question Moses' authorship of the, uh, of the Torah. And uh, there's been to, some dispute over that. You know, one of the arguments, which on its face is, you know, a legitimate argument, is the fact that, you know, at the end of the Torah, at the end of... Um, Deuteronomy, uh, it gives the death of Moses. And so it's like, well, how can Moses have authored that? So a couple answers to that. One is that he really did, like he knew he was going to die and he knew what was going to happen, whether it's prophetically or just basically like, hey, this is how it's going to go down. And so he goes ahead and writes it ahead of time. That's a possibility. Um, I think we don't need to necessarily, I mean, it's possible. We don't need to necessarily do that. Here's a quote from Edward Young out of an introduction to the Old Testament. <clears throat> this is what he says, quote, When we affirm that Moses wrote, or that he was the author of, the Pentateuch, we do not mean that he himself necessarily wrote every word. The witness of sacred scripture leads us to believe that Moses was the fundamental or real author of the Pentateuch. In composing it, he may indeed have employed parts of previously existing written documents. Also, under divine inspiration, there may have been later minor additions and even revision. Substantially and essentially, however, it is the product of Moses. Close quote. Okay, so let's look at some verses that, ha that are internal evidence. And when I say internal evidence, I mean internal to the Torah or to the Pentateuch itself. So Exodus 17, 14. Steve? Then Yahweh said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Okay, so we have God telling Moses to write this down. So that's, that's pretty definitive right there. And then um, Paul, Exodus 34, 27. Boy, Wayne, you made it a little tough on... On Mark there. <laughs> Is Gerald going to be right Exodus 34, 27. And yes. the Lord said to Moses, Write these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. Okay, so again we have from within the Torah itself, 
presumably Moses writing, that God told Moses to write these things down. And then one more, Numbers 33, verses 1 and 2. Maybe Gerald. I got Gerald. Please. These are the stages of the people of Israel when they went out of the land of Egypt by their companies and under the leadership of Moses and Aaron. Moses wrote down their starting places stage by stage by command of the Lord, and these are their stages according to their starting places. Okay, so here we get really specific that they're, uh, the, about what it was that was written down, their, the path, uh, basically what Pastor Nick is, is going through and this route that they're taking. And not only did he record it, but God told him to write this path down to, to make sure that he recorded. So that's from within the Pentateuch. Now, outside, external to the Pentateuch, but still in the Bible itself, we have uh, Joshua, uh, chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. Go ahead. Where did it go? Oh, only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you'll have good success. All right, so Joshua, who is the immediate successor of Moses himself, says, hey, make sure that you do all of the law, which is what, uh, which was a product of Moses. Uh, Mark 7, verses 9 and 10. He was also saying to them, you are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. Okay, so now we're into the New Testament, and we have Jesus saying, um, Moses told you when it has to do with the law. We're just going to do one more of these. Um, I know that we are fairly familiar with these references, but Glenda, go ahead and read uh, Mark did I put? Yeah, Mark twelve twenty six. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? Okay. Yes, Master Gary. What's the book of Moses? What is the book of Moses? That, so that's when it says the book of Moses, it's referring to the law. So, you know, we have divided it all into these individual books, and that's the way we reference it. And I would say that they did the same, but um, I, uh, a reference to Moses is a reference to the law. And the law contain, is the Torah that and is contained within uh, those, those first five books there, the Pentateuch. Now, I will tell you this. You can divide. We're looking at just overall themes of, of these books. And you can divide Genesis a, a lot a number of different ways, for sure. Um, so I'm going to point out a couple of things that I've chosen to do with how to, how to look at this. And one of the things that is unique, I think we kind of lose this because it's so common to us, but it wasn't at the time. But one of the things that was unique to Christianity or, you know, to the truly biblical Yahweh worldview um, theological view that is unlike the rest of the world at the time is this idea of telos. And a telos just means end, fulfillment, 
purpose. It's the point, right? That there, that everything, uh, or goal, that everything is moving towards in a specific direction to accomplish a particular goal. And to us, I think, because if you're here or you're in church hearing the word I'm preached all the time, you're like, uh, yeah, of course, it's all moving towards a goal. So we're so saturated with that and used to that, that doesn't seem strange to us at all. But actually, in the ancient Near East, they did not have that kind of theological concept at play. They were about lots of gods, a pantheon of gods that represented all different aspects of nature or, 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 or man. And so they had all of these different gods and it turns into this cat and mouse game of trying basically to please the God, which really amounts to manipulating the God because they want to achieve something in their life at that particular time. And that's how they live their lives, which has, does not equate to, hey, this is what I'm going through now or I'm going to obey no matter what because there is a one true God that has an ultimate purpose. They're not living with, you know, the ancient Near East is not living with an ultimate purpose in mind. They're living for the day and leveraging whatever particular God to make their day better. Now, sadly, despite 3,500 more years of advancement, I just described today as well, right? Like, <laughs> change the names of the gods, but we're talking about the same thing. There are people that are God's people that are looking at a telos, and, uh, that there is an end, that there's going to be a fulfillment, that there is a, a goal that we're heading towards, and because of that, there's something bigger, something more important uh, than us individually. The world does not revolve around us, and that, uh, God, Lord willing, that then affects all of your decision-making, you know, how you speak to your spouse, how you spend your money, how you spend your time, you know, all those kinds of things, if you have this in mind, as opposed to saying, well, this is all I've got, and I'm going to bow down at the, you know, temple of self-pleasure, of peace, of whatever. So, uh, so that's interesting, is that that was prevalent at that time, this whole idea of uh, telos. Um, and then the second thing is that we have discussed many times, oh, 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 and of course, the telos of Scripture, as we continue through all of Scripture, the telos is, someone give me the Sunday school, the, the children's Sunday school answer. Okay. So, the, so that's, that's why we can, as we read Scripture, and you know, even in the prayer that I had at the very beginning, we can be thankful for the time that we even live because we know the name Jesus. We, I can say that, and it's just like, well, Jesus, because this is where we live, where we know this goal equates to this person, this God-man. And, um, and so we have that particular thing in view. Now, we've also discussed many times this principle that uh, this, this principle of the repeating, the Hebrew literary technique of repeating something. Um, and then they talk about the issue again, and only they add a little bit more, you know. And then they talk about, they bring the whole thing up, and they add a little bit more. And it just keeps going like that. Well, uh, through, through time, as time is progressing, is... These accounts, um, 
you know, maybe there are new names, but, but it gets filled in even more and we, and we learn more about it. Well, um, what, how this helps us with Genesis is we're able to actually go this direction and say, well, wait a minute, if we have gotten used to, as we're reading scripture, this idea that everything is unfolding and we're learning more about it, when we look at Genesis and we think about the theme of Genesis, that means that we're looking at the very beginnings uh, the very beginnings of everything. So even though these things are gaining momentum and gaining information, at some point there is like a singular point, right? It had to have a start. And so that's what we see in Genesis. And in fact, uh, one quote, uh, one author said, quote, every important Christian doctrine is found in Genesis in seed form. Close quote. So... Uh, obviously, that's a really big uh, claim right there. And then also Genesis itself is the third most quoted Old Testament book in the Bible behind Psalms and Isaiah. So we know that the telos in all of Scripture is Jesus. Therefore, let's, let's look at the actual seed uh, of that entire concept. And that is in Genesis 3.15. Okay, looks like that's Joel. So, in context, this is the Lord God saying to the serpent, uh, Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Okay, so in this verse, in God's words, we basically see a prophecy of two things. We see that, first of all, one of the prophecies is that there are going to be two peoples, right? There's going to be an offspring of the woman, and there is going to be an offspring of the evil one. And then the second thing that we see is that the adversary will cause pain to a specific member of the offspring of the woman, but that a, a, that particular person um, that's in that line is going to crush the head of the serpent. So we see this theme being launched starting at Genesis 3:15 about offsprings if i can say it that way you know two different lines two offsprings godly line ungodly line and then we also see this uh, uh this concept of uh, a promise there that that a person in the line of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. And so that is where we see this initial little seed that's, that's going to begin to grow and take roots and, and uh, become bigger and bigger and bigger throughout the remainder of uh, God's word until it reaches its fulfillment in Christ. So the two things that we see in, in um, Genesis that continue to bear itself out and to back this up are so I'm hoping here to make genealogies a little more interesting out of all of this. So, so what we have is we have these series of covenants, and then we also see along it is our genealogy. So, you know. If you want to say it's the yellow brick road through scripture and you have our yellow bricks 
are these covenants, and then that mortar that's between them are these genealogies. The genealogies, they're that moving sidewalk, they keep the storyline progressing forward, but the meat of what it's moving forward to and through and for are these covenants. And so you have originally, you have, now the word covenant is not used itself, but you have um, in, uh, at creation, we have this covenant of works with Adam. And essentially, if you, you know, hey, Adam, here, here's, here's how it's going to go. If you do what I tell you to do, blessing, everything's, everything's good. Um, and if you break the covenant, then there are going to be sanctions. So the covenant of works is just based on obedience. If Adam obeys, he and all of creation enjoy the benefits. And of course, he does not, and the curse of death is then activated. After this begins, now this is what's interesting, and this is why I've connected the two, is as soon as Adam violates the covenant, and God makes this promise in Genesis 3.15, what what it rolls into right after that is essentially a genealogy. And immediately we see the tale of two different lines, two offsprings. And so this is what's fascinating. So uh, who's my Genesis 4? Did I I put that up there? Oh, I didn't. Oh, yeah, I did. Hannah. Hannah? Oh, wait. Okay. Stephen's right. Oh, Brooklyn, you got it? Stephen. Let's go Stephen right there. It's right there. All right, Stephen, Genesis 4. So this is interesting. Our very first genealogy, look at whose it is. Genesis 4, verses 17 to 24. Cain, sorry. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son. Enoch to Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered, I don't know how to, I'm going to mess that Mitchell and Mitchell fathered Methshushel and Meth. I'm butchering this. uh, Fathered Lamech and Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Adah and the name of the other Zeal. Adah bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. Okay. Thank you, Stephen. Sorry about setting you up like that. So what we have here immediately is Cain's genealogy. That's the first thing out of the chute after this. So within this genealogy, if you get past the difficult names, you'll see is what it starts with is a brother killer, Cain, and seven generations, it ends with a child killer, Lamech, who not, uh, he, not only does he kill a young man, but he takes pride in it, right? He, he gloats about how he uh, has, has done that. So we see here in, within this genealogy um, the fact that people's lives are cut short. Remember how even in the previous uh, Sunday School series we looked at the fact that, you know, these psalms and everything that call for somebody's lives to be cut, um, to go early to the grave. So there is, of course, everyone's going to die, but there's a difference when someone's life is cut short. There's a sense of judgment there. Okay, so then on the heels of that, we have instead, um, 
we have Seth, uh, it goes back up, actually. After Cain's genealogy, it actually goes back up to Adam and Eve. And then it walks through a 10-generation list, and it starts with Seth. So right there in, let me turn there, in Genesis chapter 4. So in Genesis 4... In verses 26 and 27, to Seth also was uh, uh, to Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of Yahweh, and then it continues. Um, uh, yeah, so so we have essentially uh, where's it? I think it continues in chapter five. Yeah, all of chapter five then describes this genealogy that goes for 10 generations from Adam down to Noah. And if we read those, what you see here in contrast to that genealogy of Cain is look at some of the numbers here. Uh, The days of Adam and he fathered Seth were 800 years. Adam lived uh, were 930 years. Seth had lived 105 years. Um, he fathered Enosh, 807 years. Kenan, 815 years. You know, 905. You can see this list of names that continues all the way through chapter 5. And then you finally get through these 10, um, 10 generations. And you get to verse 32 where it says, After Noah was 500 years. And then it continues from there. So we already see this contrast. So I'm putting it in, the, in this idea of covenants and in these genealogies. And so now we see the offspring already separating and we see Cain's, which has to do with murder and people's lives cut short. And then we see this line of the Lord at this point where people are living very long lives. They're still dying. They're living very long lives and it's making a reference to um, honoring the Lord in that regard. Now, sadly, we get to Genesis chapter 6, and we see that there is widespread corruption. So even though there, is a, there are these two different lines, and it would seem, oh man, good people, bad people, right? And it would be nice and clean if we could just continue to do that. But even the lines of the people that are in the plan for the good guys, or however you want to put it, they get, right? Uh, Genesis 6 says the whole world there was widespread corruption. You don't see it saying, oh, well, brothers of Noah, you know, these other family members that came from the line of Seth, they're also in the ark. They're not, right? Even though the, this line, it, it gets pared back down all the way to Noah. And now Noah is in the ark. And now we get to our next covenant and it comes to Noah. And God does essentially a, a kind of reboot. He floods the earth even though it's a reboot, it's not a full reboot because sin has not been taken away. And uh, yes, there, there is a, a restart to mankind as far as numerically, but there is not a restart in the sense that Noah didn't uh, have the opportunity to, to, for there to not be sin. Sin exists. Noah does, in fact, in himself, and things go sideways once again. Uh, in that... In that Noah, Noahic covenant, um, God says he will not destroy the world again with a flood. 
And again, if we're looking at this and how this is rolling out, is that even though now we're at Noah, I'm going to write here, let me write Noah's name next to this second circle. So see how we're seeing this thing kind of, kind of repeat uh, with more information? Is that all, what's happening here is actually just a fulfillment, an ongoing fulfillment of what took place back here in Genesis 3.15. So what God promised he was going to do back here, he's continuing to do by making this promise to Noah. And we see for the first time the word covenant being used with Noah. And so that this is all part of uh, fulfilling what he promised back in, in Genesis 3.15. Um, he also, another thing of note here is that he also... God also gives Noah, that shows kind of the difference in the same, God uh, gives Noah the same commandment to be fruitful and to multiply, but there is a, uh, a distinction this time. Um, when that was said to Adam, there was no sin around, and now what we see here in chapter 9 when that same thing is told to Noah, it says, um, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And then verse 2, 9 verse 2 says, The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish in the sea. So now we have that dominion taking place, but now fear and force is having to be used because sin has entered the world. So we see this change kind of taking place. All right. Now, chapter 11 uh, no, no, hold on. I got ahead of myself. All right, so what follows then? So now we start to see this, uh, as you proceed through Genesis, you start to see, okay, so this was Cain. It went seven generations. It went to Lamech. And from uh, Lamech, we uh, find after our covenants here, of course, what does it do to move the storyline along? It uses genealogies. The genealogies carry us then to, my, my abbreviation there means Tower of Babel. All right? And so what we have is that you get to chapter 10 of Genesis, and that makes up the table of nations. So when you read chapter 10 and it lists, here are the sons of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, you know, you had Noah, and then it, it uses that genealogy um, um, technique to move the story along a line, a story along a line, storyline along so that you have Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And at this point you go, okay, well, we've got our separate offspring, but we run into the same issue. You get to chapter 10 and you have this table of nations and we don't know when you read chapter 10 if there's any kind of a problem. It just says, hey, here's basically the international community. They were all of one language and everything like that. But then immediately following chapter 10 is chapter 11 where you have the Tower of Babel. So think about this for a moment. In fact, you can even go to Genesis chapter 11. And if you think about this, was there a distinction between Noah's line, because there was a, a covenant with him, so things should be much better now with Noah again, right? And we have this, um, uh, this, this genealogy of Noah, so you're thinking, okay, good guys, right? Good team. This should carry. And then we get to... Genesis chapter 11, and notice this, so this is after the list of those table of nations, so the whole international community, and chapter 11 begins with, now the whole earth had one language and the same words. So, in other words, there's no distinction at this point, just in the narrative, between anybody that came from Noah 
and anybody that came, you know, this route here, Kane, Lamech, and, and that, right? We just, it goes from, hey, there, here are these two lines, which makes sense, meaning two offspring, two lineages, because that's what was prophesied in Genesis 3.15. But by the time you get to Genesis 11, they're all together again. And then you have what this big event at the Tower of Babel where they all want to make a name for themselves. Essentially, they want to usurp God, which is the exact same thing that was going on in the garden. And so we have essentially the whole earth, this whole two different offspring thing doesn't seem to be working. You see how it keeps failing? Not because of God's plan, not because of God's promises, but because of mankind and their sin. It keeps getting, uh, they become corrupted. So now basically you have a worldwide corruption all over again. But we already have God's covenant with Noah that says, well, I'm not going to wipe out all the world. We're not doing that again. We're not doing that technique again. We're not going to wipe everyone out and start with a, a, another version of Noah. So instead, what does God do? He says, okay, and I, instead of going creation and starting with one guy to impact all of creation, I'm going to give over, this is what Numbers uh, or Deuteronomy 32, I'm going to give over all of them. I'm going to spread their, uh, their, uh, their languages. I'm going to give over the nations. Um, and I am going to start from scratch with a man of my choosing. So now this time it isn't a creation thing, and he goes to Abraham. So what do we have again? Now we have a covenant with Abraham. So you see this, again, this is just my analogy, the whole yellow brick road thing, where you have these bricks that are moving forward that are, that are substantive, that are promises that God has made to move forward. Ultimately, even though he's using these to move forward, it's to accomplish the telos of what he promised in Genesis 3.15. And when it gets to the Tower of Babel, and they've all basically become corrupt again, he does it a different way. And he goes, okay, I'm going to call this guy Abram out of the land of the Chaldeans, whose dad, by the way, worships false gods, and I am going to make a nation out of him. And so now you have a covenant with Abraham right here that this is how it's going to go down from here. Now you just move through Genesis and you get these ongoing accounts that take place with the sons, that line. Again, we're back to lineage, we're back to genealogy of these co- people that have received covenants and then the lineage, the, the, the offspring, the genealogy that continues from there. So, and here's just another uh, kind of interesting fact, is that the first 11 chapters of Genesis essentially chronologically covers about a millennia. You know, if you go through and look at the, how old everybody was. And then the next 10 chapters of Genesis covers 25 years. So you talk about slowing, the, slowing things way down. Uh, the, next 10, uh, the next 10 chapters cover about 25 years. And everything is slowing down to show God working out his promises. And, of course, how is God moving that plan along? Uh, he's doing that, of course, through uh, genealogy, and specifically, so what we see is then it jumps back into the genealogy of Seth, and uh, that's where we get, uh, by following the genealogy of Seth, we end up getting he's, his genealogy is explicitly called out, and it lands on Abraham. Abram, of course, to begin with. Then, 
of course, a- a- Abraham is famous for not having a child for a long time, but then eventually he has two. Do you, are you seeing these themes? So this is the point of picking this up. He ends up having two. He has Ishmael and he has Isaac. And so once again, we see this theme of offspring and how one is a product of sin and one is a product of God's faithfulness to his people. And so once again, we have this focus, genealogy on Isaac, and we end up seeing as the book of Genesis progresses, the narrative slowed down, the narrative of these different lives. Now you'll notice that I have in lowercase these names, and the reason I have that is because in different places in Genesis, you have a reiteration of the Abrahamic covenant with Isaac, with Jacob, and with Judah. So these covenants have some distinctions. The Abrahamic covenant is essentially renewed. The same covenant is renewed that there's going to be a people that is going to rule over a specific land that's renewed with Isaac. And then you see the narrative unfolds. Same thing, another brick. It's renewed with Jacob. Same thing, all the way until we get to actually the very end of Genesis. And in Genesis 49, what does Genesis 49 have? Anyone? Any guess? Genealogy. We have a genealogy. And among these people, we have 12 people who are described because this is now uh, at, at 49 is now the death of, this is a description of the final days of Jacob. And then we have him describing the promise. He's essentially handing on the promise that was made to Abraham renewed in Isaac, renewed in Jacob, and he is saying, hey, about the future, whatever is to to come, there's this covenant that has been made, there's this promise that has been made, which really has its roots back here in that Genesis 3.15, and you are going to see that bear fruit. So bigger circle, if we're continuing another analogy, right? You're going to see that in Judah. And it's just launching. So that's what's happening in Genesis. That's this overarching theme, is we have these things that are, as I've put it, substantive, that are meaningful. We have these covenants. And what makes them meaningful is that God is the one that has established the covenants, right? He has condescended to say, look, I owe you nothing, but I'm making a promise. And and, and so it's that hope that gets us on that path that moves us towards a telos of ultimately of a Messiah that will get, you know, as the circle continues to get bigger and bigger in all of these stories. And that, you know, now you can start plotting around this, this circle the story of, you know, so-and-so, the story of so-and-so, you know, because all of this is feeding something moving forward to a specific goal that actually originated in its most seed-like form back in Genesis 3.15. So, I mean, huge concepts that are rooted in Genesis. So, as you think about Genesis, as you read through Genesis, as you pray through Genesis, um, and you bump up against genealogies and against covenants, don't, you know, know that there is great value 
in those genealogies, not only in there being a historical record, you know, like something empirical, but great value in that because it's those genealogies that are not just moving a storyline forward, it's moving the fulfillment of a promise forward. The, the connections are just, that's why it's like, well, you got to pick a way to kind of see this thing continue through. And uh, we as good covenant theologians believe that it's those, those covenants that, that really tie this together until it finds its ultimate fulfillment in the new covenant with Jesus Christ. Three minutes left. Oh, I should, okay, let me, uh, okay, uh, let me just mention. So, um, starting at Genesis 37, the book concludes with the story of Joseph. What's interesting, though, if you've never thought about this, um, Jesus does not come through the line of Joseph. Joseph is, in a sense, a, a side account, but he's, Joseph is highlighted kind of typologically, a, you know, a foreshadowing of who Jesus is and what he's going to accomplish. Um, but, that, but, but it returns, even though this whole long story of Joseph that we all love, by the end of Genesis, it returns back to the genealogy that points to Judah because that is going to eventually get to the greater Joseph, the telos of all of these covenants, Jesus. Okay, go, Brooklyn. Did you have a comment or a question? Oh. I had a verse, but... Oh, my goodness. Okay. What, what's your verse so that I can see? Okay. Far, far past that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. We'll skip that. Yeah. Anyone? Uh, one thing interesting in the, gene- in the genealogies, when you get back to Cain's genealogy. Yes. And was it the Lamech that was kind of the bully guy or tough yeah. guy? But um, his two sons... One was basically, like, at least attributed to be the first musician. Yes. And the other one was the first kind of, like, metallurgy yep. kind of guy. Yeah. And so it's, and that's, like, only about six generations from Cain. Yeah. And so I think that shows the um, development of a human culture where they were really advancing quickly, where they were using the powers that God gave them to, you know, do all these, you know, culture and, yeah. and you know, technology to improve themselves. But ultimately that was for their own sinful purpose. You, you just nailed it. In fact, specifically, it talks about the fact that they uh, had livestock, that one of them played the lyre and pipe, and one of them was a forger of iron and bronze tools. So just like you said, but here we have this development <clears throat> in one sense of civilization and it's being moved forward um, in uh, in an industrial way, I suppose you could say, but by all the worst characters. And so... So that's all leading to the Tower of Babel, right? Yes. So where, at that point, as opposed to destroying the earth again, you're saying Tower of Babel, he just changed our languages. Yeah, he said, I'm going to split you up. Yeah. yeah, That was like being alone. Yeah. Yes. Jamie. In a strange way, though, these two lineages are all commingled in every person. And um, the good are, are not 100% good, and uh, the bad, in some cases, are not 100% bad. And then we struggle with that up to even to the uh, present day. Um, but this separation takes place in, in victory, in this conflict that's in, present in everyone, 
through Jesus. Yes, the distinction that I would make is that um, everyone is 100% bad, and that I think where that bears itself out is that it doesn't matter if you start with Adam and you get to Seth, it, it ends in sin with Noah, or doesn't end in it gets to sin with Noah, and from Noah, and you get to Shem, who, who manages to produce Abraham, we have sin because all of Shem's descendants end up at the Tower of Babel together. They're all messing it up. There's a holy corrupt. Um, and then we get to Abraham, and then, uh, you know, no matter, so every time one of these people point to any name you want is involved along the way, it ends in sin and death. It isn't until we get to the telos of the guy who then is the fulfillment where we have no part of that. <laughs> as soon as you subtract us and put in Jesus, now we gain the benefit of, of that. Yes, very nice. Little, little book plug. And that wasn't even authored by, uh, by Dickie, was it? Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Um, thank you that there is a Genesis, the book, that there was a Genesis, the beginning, that there was a Genesis 3.15, that you made a promise even after uh, that first covenant was violated that you made a promise that there would be a future, there would be a telos, there would be a goal, there would be um, a, a history moving toward redemption and that you saw it through, um, even though we, at every one of those blocks where there was substance, we, we still left the path entirely. But all praise be to your name that you uh, saw it through all the way to its very finish. Bless uh, the service, bless our pastor as he brings uh, the good word in Christ's name. Amen.